Welcome to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. Well, we're now in the Christmas season to cheer and give. So I've been scouring the earth for the women in our business. And I believe this is the most important part. We need to hear more of the women. I know it's a male-dominated industry. And the women that have been able to keep it going and teach us along the way is one that I'm going to bring up just in one moment. She's a powerhouse. And here's the craziest part. Can you imagine when you have a hit record out? Back in the beginning of your career. And it's a pop record. and a famous show at the time called Living Color takes your actual video and makes, you know, kind of a comedy routine out of it. That's when you know you have now stepped into like icon level. Crazy, right? Like when they did with MC Hammer, when he did that funny thing with his aunts and everything on, on those shows. But we all admire her dearly. She's a force to be reckoned with. She's been this in this game for decades. And of course, I'm going to bring up right now the one and only Crystal Waters. Welcome. Hi, Lenny. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. We are so happy to have you. I can't thank you enough. We've been talking for months about this. Oh, yeah. So we scheduled this stuff <laughs> nine, ten months to get yeah. to to these and she also said to me this is her last interview <laughs> it's <the> last one <laughs> so she's gonna shut the water off after this water's gonna be oh, shut down the well is dry <laughs> so first before i ask any questions how you doing everything good is everything good everything's good everything's flowing i'm actually enjoyed being home i've been on the road for 30 years. So <laughs> it's actually nice to be home and, you know, get a nice schedule going, getting Good. some things done. All right. Well, I'm glad you're healthy and I'm glad, you know, again, along the way with this horrible C word, we've lost <laughs> a lot of great people. Yeah. You know? And we were saying off camera before, we just don't know how many more we may lose, but we have to enjoy each day as our last, we should say at this point. But we're enough of that morbid nonsense. <laughs> think about it, but it's around us. But so let's, because I know you have a lot to tell us. I always ask this first question, and and I'm going to give you the the microphone, and you can roll. You know, it's All right. basically how does music find the young, young child, Crystal Waters? Because we know you're an adult. We know. That <laughs> the story after the videos and all that great stuff we want to know how you get from the young one to where you step in the biz you know as crystal waters um so yeah the young crystal waters was very shy um i used to always sit in my bedroom with my headphones on listen to the jackson five um loved music loved music my father was a jazz musician and he toured so every summer i would go with my father uh, Junior Waters. He actually had a, a little minor hit in the 60s, My Life is a Seven, and actually got to appear on American Bandstand. Um, so, I, I, you know, I tell people, I, I didn't realize it, but I guess I've been on the road since I was eight because I'm an expert packer. I can pack a suitcase. <laughs> but 
But yeah, so I spent, you know, my life around that. Um, there was always rehearsals at the house. My brother was in a band. Um, my sister sang and played play piano. My uncle Zach was uh, Zach Zachary, who was the lead saxophonist for MSFB and TSOP. So love is the message. And Diana Ross touched me in the morning. If you heard the saxophone on that, you heard my uncle right there. Um, Gamble and Huff were uh, friends of the family. I remember Teddy Pendergrass being around. So um, in hindsight, I guess it makes all sense. But at the time, I didn't realize it because, you know, you're always regulated to your room and, you know, you really couldn't hang out with the adults. Um, <laughs> but I always I since I was such an introvert, I think I loved to write and I would always write um, poems. And I was, my sister had a typewriter, one of those big old typewriters, and I just wanted to do that. So I would spend time, you know, typing. I would, I would, you know, get record songs off the radio and figure out the lyrics. And I would make, I would walk to the store and get the teen magazines and make up music magazines of my own. <laughs> so that's, that's really kind of what my, my childhood was like. So you say that, you know, you had all this talent coming into the house because your mom was friends with a lot of these people and of course your uncle and your dad mm -hmm. and your imagination of you making these teen beat. So you actually did have a destiny of where you were going <laughs> to go. This, I kind of see it clearly now. It's nice to see in hindsight, but at the time, you know, I thought I was too shy. Um, I always wanted to go to a performing arts school, but that didn't happen at at the time, I had you know, the choice was to go to New York or to Howard at Washington, D.C. And, you know, without, you know, should have went to New York, maybe. But I don't know. I ended up going to Howard. But um, I think, you know, I remember telling those stories, too, when I when I was at work. And this is when one of my coworkers, when I didn't know what to do with my career next, I was working in the computer room at um, the parole board. And he kept saying, you know, you love music. Why don't you do something with music? I was like, what? Why? What? <laughs> and that's when he said he had a cousin with a studio and was looking for background singers. And it, it wasn't until then that the, the light bulb went off. How long were you actually a parole officer before this, this moment happened? Um, I wasn't a parole officer. I did issue warrants in the computer room. <laughs> I'm sorry. And there was only one computer in the whole building, and that was the one I knew how. I went to Howard University for computer science, so that was the one I, that I knew how to work. Um, I think I, got, I was there maybe a year, because I remember I got signed in 1987, but I sat until 91. But I was happy <laughs> that I was signed to a major label. It was so long that the people at, at the Pro Board thought I was lying. They didn't think <laughs> I really had a deal. They were like, when's the record coming out? When's the record coming out? But so I was there a good year or two before uh, Gypsy came out. So in 87, when this was signed, who was the people behind that record? in the production that you did. It was the Basin Boys. At first, it, was, it was Basin Boys at that time. Yeah, signed to them, actually signed to them as a songwriter. And you want me to tell that story? <laughs> How I met the Basement Boys. I guess you, must, I you may have to tell it. Yes. Yeah, let me, let me rewind a little bit. <laughs> so yeah, so I was at the, I was at the Pro Bowl working for the DC government. And I got to, if you ever work for the government, there's a list that comes around that tells you how much you're going to make every year, G4, G5. And I was like, oh, this is going to take me 10 years to make some money. <laughs> and that's when I got invited to do this background singing. 
And I got in the studio and the light bulb went off. This is what I wanted to do. And I was hanging around the studio and I realized no one else was going to, you know, help me to get into this business, especially as a female. You know, anyway, men and females in the studio. (laughs) I'll let you picture that. So I just knew the one thing I knew I could do was write. I knew I could write. So I put an ad in the local city paper looking for keyboardists to co-write songs with because there was a music section at, at the back of the paper where people would get together. And I met this guy and we got along great and we did a demo. I was doing more of a Charday type of voice, you know, um, sound. And there was a music conference in Washington, D.C. I don't remember the name of it at the time. And we didn't have any money to go, but I had this demo. My father paid for the demo. I went to Philadelphia. We got the demo made. And we ended up sneaking in the back door of, it was like in a hotel, like the Marriott or something. We we broke in the back door, we snuck in and I saw, didn't know the names, these guys with these really nice leather jackets on. They said basement boys across the back, had a little patch. And I was like, give it to him. It was Teddy. I said, give him, you know, give him the demo. And, you know, that was it. Maybe handed out another demo to maybe one or two other people because everybody was leaving. And I got home. And the phone rang and it was Teddy Douglas. And he was like, I love your stuff. I love the way you write. We want you to write for us. And I was like, yeah, sure. And, you know, he said, you know, they did. um, I don't know if he actually told me what type of music, but it was dance music, which was really new, especially here in D.C. Maybe you heard it late night, you know, maybe in the club. It was more of a um, confunction sound at the time, a little bit more funkier dance sound. Um, So I said, long as I can write, you know, do me over the beat. I don't, I don't care. And he said, that's what we want. We want some real songs over these beats. And that's how we met. And they sent me, they sent me a bunch of tracks. And I remember going, I rented a four track. And the first two songs I wrote was Gypsy Woman and Make It Happy. And <laughs> so I had to, you know, I, I, you know, I had a four track to get it together. And then I just remember driving up to Baltimore and singing them. I mean, I didn't have the ability to record and, you know, go up there and sing. I just remember singing Gypsy and Teddy just kind of fell out the chair. <laughs> so I stop, had- stop. going, stop. Everybody knows Teddy Douglas. He's real animated. Oh, <laughs> he married Mama. He was... Mama. <laughs> That's what we all love about Teddy because he's so animated. You like, yeah, yeah. it was saying, great. You like it? You like it? Yeah. <laughs> so that was it. They, and at the time, the um, the, the microphone was in the bathroom. <laughs> it was in Jay's in Jay's basement. That's why they were the basement boys. And the and the microphone was in the bathroom with padding, and they had the studio in the room behind it. Um, so so that's how that started. We recorded those songs. And I had some of the Chardet stuff on there and they shopped it. And so like, um, yeah, they shopped and I guess it got signed at A&M in London at first. And that's where it sat until I guess 90 when Bruce Carbone came in from Mercury Records, who was the sister company to A&M and brought it over to New York. I think Tony Humphreys was playing it. And and Bruce Carbone heard it in the club or whatever, and or on BLS, and went after it. I can remember exactly how it went because we all had tapes of it. 
<laughs> cassettes. <laughs> we had, well, and some of us had real to reels of it, and we were running it. Remember, Tony Humphries was playing it on Kiss Master Mix two nights uh-huh. ago for okay. a while, and people were looking for this record, looking for this record, looking for this record. And then eventually, I guess it was already Steve Wolf, I presume, signed it. And well, A&M, um, Wolfie over in and yeah. AM, because that's where he would have signed it first. And then I think it was in the system, and Bruce Carbone grabbed it. Mm-hmm. And then next thing you knew, here we are talking about your friend. I had, I had no idea that was going on, that it was being played oh in New York. <laughs> I was just going to work every day, and I had no idea until they, they called me, like, I don't know, February of 91. <laughs> And said you had a hit, and I was like, okay. <laughs> what do you mean a hit? Like, what? I, didn't, I didn't know what that meant at all. I thought they met in Baltimore and DC. I had no idea who Tony Humphrey was and what the whole scene was in New York, you know, even or Chicago. Clueless. Well, is that because you have more jazz background? Is that where you? Is that where your you're listening to at the time, or is that just a matter of being totally going to work every day and just living day to day life? Basically? Well, I was I was in college, and you know, only time you know from college to working. So anytime I went out was in the clubs, and I wasn't you know the radio stations were paying R and B, um, and the only time you heard dance music here was if you were in the club late. And like I said, you know, maybe on the ride home from the club, would you hear, you know, we called it dance music, you know? And it was kind of, you know, there was no name for it at the time. It was just that stuff they played late at night. <laughs> so right, late night sound, a late night yeah. sound. Right. I wasn't really in the clubs, you know, in, in New York hanging out in the club. So I didn't really know that that whole scene until um, Gypsy Woman came out. Okay. And that's when they took me to New York and I went to the Sound Factory Bar with um, Vasquez, Junior Vasquez, and they said, you got to sit on the speakers. And I remember hearing a story about Madonna sitting on those speakers and how I just thought that was so awesome. And I got to see the whole scene. They played Gypsy Woman. I felt it through the speakers. I remember seeing all the dancers and the drag queens and, you know, <laughs> they had the circle and people dancing in the middle, they still had the baby powder going. And <laughs> so that's when I really kind of got indoctrinated into the club scene in New York. And, you know, a lot of the um, gay community took me in. And I learned I learned a lot about makeup, performance, emoting and just hanging out with all those people. Um, it just that's when the real life change came and me being part of, you know, house music, dance music scene. So basic boys give you baptism with fire, bring you to the, the box. <laughs> they just threw me in. <laughs> Throw them right in the fire den. Sodom and Gomorrah. Watch the fan oh, dance. Oh, uh, <laughs> it was like, what? People do what? Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> if you've never seen that, that's like a, that's a more, a, I call that the life changing experience. It is. Instantaneous, that. right? <laughs> And you know, people love it. That's a that's a man. What is that? An address? What? Yeah, right. <laughs> no. So it, it was. I got thrown in. I had sink or swim at that point. But I loved it because I was so, like I said, I was so shy. And I always never felt like I really fit in most places. So when you got to New York, I got to that scene, and everybody was individual, individual, and didn't give a hoot about what anybody else thought about it. That kind of gave me my self confidence 
you know, to be me and not be afraid just to be me. So yeah, it was really, it was, it was, it was life changing, but it was really, um, I want to say a homecoming, but like a, a, like feeling, you know, welcome a part of something. Now this must be the moment as this record is exploding. Cause I remember it like yesterday is exploding. Cause it, it was a changing of sound. It was one of the first of this genre to go pop because everybody that understands pop music is anything that's popular. So you're taking a four, four sound that's, Reminiscent of disco, but it's not disco. It's an organ-driven track with mm -hmm. your sound on it. You're changing the game like instantaneously. I remember it was like one minute was one way, and now <laughs> musical. No, because before that it wasn't musical. It was more drummy, more linear sounding the records. And now mm -hmm. here we come with this ba 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 ba. You know, Hammond organ, a straight chord progression, straight up. And your voice, which is different than anyone else. You yeah, know, I remember they had me in the R&B department the first time I came up. I went back home and came back. They were like, nope, we're switching over, hand over to the pop. I was like, <laughs> okay, so I do something. And I think, yeah, since I had that jazz voice as opposed to maybe the gospel or R&B voice, I think it was a lot of, and you know, you know, with so many mixes, one of them is orchestrated, you know, it's full strings and everything. And they had that, and they went to the strip to the bone mix, which was deep club mix. So, you know, looking back at it, yeah, I, I can see how, you know, it was a game changer. And you're not even realizing you're living it. See, that's right. You're like the goldfish inside. Now you're inside the system. <laughs> but you got to explain to me, because people don't really understand when we say hit, gold record, you know, they don't really get this. They don't understand what that means, how much work now you're going to do, uh, for example, Top of the Pops or American Bandstand at the time, or whatever's, you know, your life goes from, you're, you're working a nine-to-five job, and now all of a sudden you're going to Michael Jackson and Madonna status, like, like a yeah. it was It was a lot. It was, it was, it was hard. I was just talking to an ex of mine. He was, we were talking about how I would be so tired. You go from, you know, you're doing free shows, you're doing interviews. Interviews would last from like 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Um, this is like one after another, one after another, photo shoots. We used to do at least three shows a night. You know, back then there was a club on every corner. It was me, CNC Music Factory. Um, Three, three shows a night, like Wednesday through Sunday. <laughs> so it, it was, it was, that was the daytime was full and the nighttime. Um, and then you're traveling overseas. And back then they had the Concord and they would fly me over to, to Paris and then back to do the Palladium that night. Things like that. And then into choreography, um, Diane Martel. <laughs> who a lot of people I work with are so famous now. Um, Diane Martell did the first choreography. Then we had Jamil Graves. And then we did the videos, Marcus Nispel. You know, and it was never like, you know, it was always like, just come now. It was never like a schedule, like we're going to do the video next week. It was just, you know, we need, because it, it hit, and I think it took off so fast, nobody was ready. So it was like one thing after another. And then there was no album. I wasn't around to do an album. So the basement boys had to basically go take all my demos, which were 
Chardet type songs, <laughs> remix them into dance tracks, basically, and use whatever demo vocal they had. Because I couldn't go back in because a lot of these songs were written for other people. I was signed as a songwriter to write for other artists on their label. So there wasn't any real like backgrounds or any harmonies. So they had to take whatever demo I had left <laughs> and create songs out of them and try to make them sound good. There was no um, auto tune and stuff back then. So that first album, <laughs> when I got back from London, I had an album and I had no, I had nothing to do with the album. So it was, it was really, it was just, it was a shock and it was just a lot, a lot going on. And I, and actually I kept my job for the first year and a half because I didn't want to lose my health care. I didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't know that this was going to be the rest of my life. You know, it's my first time having a passport. And um, so I, you know, I stayed, I stayed at the job. I took a leave of absence, but I still kept the job as long as I could. But let's be real for a second. You just said something really interesting. You just got a passport. Your, your, your whole vision is changing. You're becoming more worldly too, as you're traveling. Cause I've learned this too. There was no school, like being on the road. You know that mm. on the yeah. road, your way of, <laughs> Right or wrong, you know, on the road is like dra dragging through dirt. <laughs> Just got to keep going. Assimilating with the people that you're going to. You got to sit and have dinners. You got to yeah. deal with this. You got to deal with that. It's not politics of the. Yeah, I did. What I was with Mercury at the time where they would have etiquette classes. They would try to teach you a little bit how, especially, you know, they knew I was shy, how to speak to people, you know. And I have to also say that the um, education I had with my father being on the road, you know, one thing he always taught me was always accept a gift. If they ask you want some water, yes, because that's the way people, you know, converse. And, you know, he also taught me that, especially overseas at the time, I might be the only black person they ever meet. So I would represent every black person to that person. So I had to make sure that I represented the whole community. So. That was always in my head. I, at least I had that, you know, in my head. But, you know, in hindsight, traveling is the best part now for me. I love meeting the people. You know, you got to do the dinners. You got to talk to people you've never met from different cultures, different accents, um, things you don't understand, you know. So, you know, that that is that is a hard thing to learn. But once you get it, it's, it's, it's very enlightening. But I remember you also saying as well, you know, let's clarify something. You were on the road real young, too. Mm -hmm. Dad, right? As well. Yeah. So yeah. You didn't, you, how, what years was that? Like teenage years? Or people I was like seven or eight. Um, I, I started traveling. My brother and sister went around 10 or 11. I started going by myself. They were they were too. They didn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> and but I would just sit and watch him. You know, he was the kind of person that could talk to everybody. And it was, a, you know, he would do small town. Back then, the Holiday Inns were the big thing. So they always had a lounge. <laughs> so he would play lounge. He'd play all the jazz standards. And, you know, you'd go into town. A lot of places, we were only black people in town. So everybody knew who he was. And he'd have to talk to everybody just as gracious. And at night, I would sit with him while he would do his sets. And he would come over, have dinner. Then he, you know, I didn't have a cell phone. I don't know what I was doing. I was probably in my, <laughs> and I was sitting, waiting until it was time, you know, after a second set, he would take me back to the hotel and go back and do his last set. 
But um, that's when I would dig into his his crates. It was all jazz stuff. And Ella Fitzgerald's like one of my favorite singers because she always had that up up tempo stuff. So yeah, I kind of knew a little bit about the road. So yeah, well, that's that you're so like like I said. So you're one step ahead. Where a lot of people who that talk about jumping into this from a regular day job, this is like oh my god, fresh course. So at least you had. You know, some sort of preparation. Even if it's not- I, see, I see people who, who, who don't know how to handle the road, who don't know how to deal with situations, and they kind of shoot themselves in the foot. And you, you want, I've seen people with a lot of talent that, not, that did not know how to handle the road or how to deal with the politics of the business. And they just disappear. They just don't want to do it anymore. Or, you know, or they just shoot themselves in the foot and never get another chance. So, yeah, there is, I always say, if you wonder where somebody went, <laughs> it's probably more of the politics or the way they handled themselves as opposed to the talent. Yep. So now we, now that we, now that you are Crystal Waters, the pop star at that time, and you come back and hear this album, where does, this, where does things start to change for you? Um, yeah, I came back, I was kind of upset about the album. Why? I would have put more focus in it. I would have re-sang a lot of the vocals. I think the Basin Boys did a good job. They did the best they could. But it's, you know, at the time, that was my baby. My songwriting is what, you know, my passion. Um, and um, I don't know. I, I think it, but I think it did for me. Once I, once I realized that this, you know, I had to come up with another hit. <laughs> the second album. <laughs> That's the next question. What's packing order? So we're still- you know, everybody, first of all, at the time, everybody said dance music was a phase. It was going to last. It's just a fad. People were asking me, when are you going to do real music? She's just a one hit wonder. I had all that, you know, we had all that on our heads and the pressure and, you know, even my family, when are you going to do, you know, some jazz music, you know, some real stuff. So, you know, we got beat up pretty good. You know, it made, it made a lot of money, but we got beat up pretty good because they, you know, mainstream didn't know what house music was. Or it was just developing and it was just coming into its full, you know, fruition. So the next song, the next album, you know, we knew we had to come up with something big, something. So that's that's when I really kind of put my my teeth into it. And I wanted to make sure that the storyteller was, you know, everything I wanted an album to be. So that's when we really, you know, got together. It was stressful. It was stressful. Still did, you have, did you have the A&R people telling you, well, we needed to be like another gypsy? Yes, I know you were shaking because we all heard that. As soon as you <laughs> have that first diabolical hit, they want everything to be de facto exactly the same way. Like the Robin S. Love, you know, show me love. I want another record just like that. Mm. Uh, I can just hear them telling you, <laughs> Teddy. Basic Boys and you, Crystal, we want another She's Homeless. And what do you do? What do you do? We rolled, we rolled our eyes. <laughs> um, well, it's a lot of pressure. You you know, we write these songs. Um, and I remember I did write a song, which I thought would be, it was called Daddy Do, which is another controversial topic. And this is what I was doing at the time. And when we handed it in, they were like, oh, you can't sing about that. You can't talk about that. I'm like, well, Gypsy Woman was about a homeless, you know, situation. And, you know, I'm so well, thank God you weren't over my shoulder when I wrote Gypsy because it would have never came out. So, yeah, I just remember 
you know, getting the tracks, um, trying to find it. I just remember getting um, 100%, and it was just the bass line and the drum. I, I like really simple stuff. And I just knew, I just knew that was it. And I wrote it, and the first hook was um, the beat goes boom. <laughs> and I was all excited. I took it up to the Basin Boys, and they kind of laughed me. <laughs> they laughed me out of the studio. They were like, go home, Mama, and try that again. <laughs> but um, there was a lot of pressure, and it was a lot of pressure on the Basin Boys, you know, for production-wise. You got to remember, you know, Quincy Jones had written them a letter saying how wonderful they were, and, you know, and they were, you know, it was a lot going on. It was, it was very stressful. But um, we got some good people in there to work with us. Um, and we pulled it together and Bruce sat on our butts, you know, making sure we had the, you know, the, at least the one hit song on the album. Um, and then we, you know, we got to, we did get to do a little bit of experimenting on the album, you know, but it was, it was, it was a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure. So when you delivered it to Bruce, now, did they look at this and say, we're going to put it to the pop side of Mercury or we're going to put this through the R&B side? Like, how are they going to handle you now? Because you're defining yourself as an artist, too. And all these things are changing. And dance right. is the bastard child, as they say. So, it was the, right. the bastard child. So let's take this <laughs> word out and let's talk about where you're going to be and who you're working with to make this second album really cook, you know? Well, after Gypsy blew up, I think dance, they started signing other dance artists. So there was other people. David Morales was on Mercury, a couple other artists. So it was more acceptable. They wanted to strike gold again. I, You know, mainstream radio was playing dance music. So, you know, it wasn't just me by the time the second album came around. So it was easy to fit. I was right back into um, the pop side. But there was a lot more hands on to Bruce coming, yes and no, and send that back and do this. Um, even the contract took three years. If you notice, Gypsy was 91, 100% came out in 94. It was a lot of, <laughs> it was a lot of drama. But um, yeah, it was, it was a lot of hands on from the label. Um, but I think in the end, it's, you know, it's my favorite album. I think it came out pretty good. I, I was very proud of that album. You should be. It was an excellent album. It's got great songs on it. Mm -hmm. It's a great, a great album. Yeah. When you say drama, hmm? when you say the word drama, there's a lot of drama going on. Are you talking legal drama or just a lot of in, interlocking with, with the horns, you know, people just egos? What, what kind of drama were you dealing with at that time with the success at the same time? Yeah, it was a lot. It was the label wanting things. It was us wanting things. It was dealing with fame and money. Um, I'm not going to tell base the basement, but the basement oh, boys story. But they have a story that they can tell if they want to tell about it. Um, I wanted more things in my contract. You know, they didn't want to give up, so it was that negotiation back and forth. Um, and then at the time, that's just how the lawyers acted. You know, I had a big time lawyer that just sucked up all my money. You know what I mean? <laughs> and they just took forever. They, they, you know, they call themselves positioning themselves and they would, they wouldn't answer a phone call. I'm like, you know, the album's ready. It's sitting. <laughs> so it was a lot of, it was illegal. It was personalities. Um, it was fame. 
Um, I, I don't I don't know if Base Boys knew how hard I was really working a lot, how many free shows I did to get Gypsy Woman to where it was, um, and how many people I had to please. Because they they were they were successful. They were still in the studio creating. They were working with big time names people at this time. And when I was out on the road, I was really busting my ass. And you know. That's why I asked you when you said about drama, because you you know, nobody knows this. The only yeah, people and, and I was going through a divorce. I forgot about that. Please search for part two of this podcast on the platform you're watching or listening to. And please do not forget to follow us.